All right, let me open us up in prayer, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, Lord, and uh, study um, methods in order to know how to faithfully uh, interpret your word, Lord. Uh, I pray for this evening for everyone here, Lord, that they will uh, continue to grow in their knowledge and love for you, Lord. Um, I pray as we uh, talk about hermeneutics tonight, Lord, that you'll speak through me, that we will be faithful in our discussion of your word, Lord. And ultimately, our main desire is to honor and worship you, Lord, with what we say about your word and how we teach your word, and ultimately just how we live our lives for you, Lord. Help us grow in holiness as you are holy, Lord, and just be with us tonight as we strive to know you more. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So, this is week four of our hermeneutics uh, talk uh, series. Remember hermeneutics, we're talking about uh, hermeneutics, which is ultimately Bible study methods or the arts and science of studying the Bible. Um, so week four, uh, as you can see on your note sheet, the discussion today is what do we bring to the text? Um, and that might sound like a weird question at first, but ultimately all of us, when we come to Scripture to start, to begin the journey, the interpretation journey, um, we come to the text with preconceived notions, with presuppositions, uh, with pre-understandings. We'll talk about that term today. Um, with things that we already have ideas about, and many times, without us realizing it, we impose those things onto the text. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, I think it's a interesting topic. Um, I don't think it's a topic that most people think of when they... Um, talk about hermeneutics and how you interpret the Bible, right? Uh, I've taught the student ministry this and uh, how to do an inductive Bible study. The way you do it is you observe, you interpret, and then you apply. You have those three steps. But many times we don't look at this uh, topic as we are today. So what do we bring to the text? Uh, as we begin, you can see the beginning of your note sheet, the top of it, we have the foundational beliefs which I have in um, parentheses, evangelical presuppositions, doing hermeneutics as Christians. So if you were here last semester, as we talked about the doctrine of God, uh, in the beginning I talked about how we should be doing theology as Christians, right? The task of theology, we should be doing it as Christians, and the same is true with interpreting the Bible, Right? It's a serious matter knowing how to interpret Scripture. So we should be doing hermeneutics as Christians. So how do we do that? Well, we have a set of foundational beliefs, as you can see on your note sheet, uh, evangelical presuppositions, uh, things that we should already preconceive as we come to the text. Um, and so you can see I have four listed on here already for us, and two uh, that are blank, and so we could talk about those in a bit. Um, but you could see the first one, the Bible is a supernatural book. God's written revelation is for his people, uh, given through prepared and selected sp spokesperson by the process of inspiration. Right? Us as believers, when we come to the text, um, as Christians... One of our preconceived notions, our presupposition, is simply that this is God's word into a supernatural book in that sense. Um, I think we could get behind that. The second one, the Bible is trustworthy and true. I think you've heard us say that many times uh, since we've started the series and even beyond that. Uh, God's word is trustworthy and true. These are some um, qualities of God's word, right? It's authoritative. Um, because it's from God, right? Who is the supreme ultimate authority? And then because what he says is true, 
this word is true. Um, third one, the Bible manifests unparalleled uh, spiritual worth and capacity to change lives. Uh, we believe as Christians this book isn't just a book, but it actually has the ability to change lives. Uh, if you are a Christian, um, you are a testimony of this reality, right? Uh, we study God's word in order for Christ, for God ultimately to change us. Uh, and it does that. So this is a preconceived notion, a presupposition that we have. Um, fourth, the Bible is a unit, uh, yet it, it is diverse. So this book that we have, before we study scripture, we have a preconceived idea already that this is one story of redemption, right? One story of how God is working in this world to save humanity. Um, but yet it's diverse. There are over 40 different authors, right, that contributed to this, to these 66 books we have in the Bible. And there's so many different genres, and these are things we'll be talking about later in the semester. Uh, what does genre do, into our, do with our interpretation method? Um, so it's diverse in that way. Um, so looking through these four, I think this is a decent list to start with, but what are some other uh, presuppositions you might want to add on to this list? You as a Christian, how do you, when you come to the text, what are some things that you automatically believe to be true as a Christian? Does anyone have any other thoughts? It's internally consistent. There are no contradictions uh, in it. Yes, that's a really good one. Um, it is consistent all throughout the text, all throughout all 66 books. I kind of, in my mind, have that under the Bible is a unit. Um, but yeah, you could also write there are no contradictions within it. What are some other things? I don't know whether this matters or not, but when I read it, I believe it's God speaking to me. Yeah, so it's, it's personal in that way. Yes. Right? We have a relationship with Christ, and we want to hear God's voice and talk with him, and the way he talks with us is through his word. Um, Jason and I actually had a discussion kind of similar to this earlier today that was far too technical I think so we won't get into all that now um, but that's right right? we want to know God's voice what, what God is like and have him speak to us so that's a, a presupposition we come with as believers and notice this everyone um, the way I'm talking about presuppositions here and coming to the text, it's not a bad thing always. I mean, there could be bad presuppositions coming to the text, um, but we're talking about good presuppositions that we want to have as believers. I think your first paragraph on this page has an interesting statement, and I was trying to think of how to verbalize this, and then I think you've already captured it. But the Holy, Holy Spirit has a role and how I interact with the Bible. Mm. And so as a human, there are going to be things about this that if I try to understand on my own, it's not gonna make sense. Yeah. But you said here, um, the Holy Spirit, and I'm gonna skip some, but positively informs our interpretation of the biblical text. Yeah. That's uh, certainly a presupposition that I hold coming to the Bible. Yeah, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, I actually, it took me a while to know how to form that statement up there, and that's what led to the long discussion I had with Jason earlier today, um, because it made me go over here and over here, all over the place with all my thoughts and how to capture what I was trying to capture with that statement. Um, as you can see, it says, as we study God's word as Christians, and that's what we're trying to do, right? Um, do hermeneutics as believers. We authentically have fellowship with the Holy Spirit who develops 
within us our confession of these foundational beliefs that positively informs our interpretation of the biblical text. Again, here, it's a positive, these are positive presuppositions um, as opposed to many negative ones we could have. So, so I have two more on this list that none of you guys have mentioned yet. Does anyone want to keep going and see if you could match the ones I had? I mean, many of you, what you guys said are true, and you could make the list obviously longer than this six. Um, One kind of has to do with the Holy Spirit in a way. Uh, Number five for me, I have, the Bible is understandable. And maybe this also goes with what Tom was saying. Um, The Bible is understandable for those who seek to know God by it. Right? So we can't actually understand this. Um, We study it to understand it. So obviously that has to be a presupposition. Before we come to the text to study scripture, we have a belief that when we study this, we can know what it says truly, right, about God. We believe it has a truth behind um, the text that we're trying to get to, and it could be understood. And then there's a last one I have. Any other presuppositions you guys might have? foundational beliefs that you guys might have when you come to the text to study it. This one has to do with time. I think Jason knows what it is. He's shaking his head yes. Um, It has to do with time. And um, since uh, the text was written all the way until we have it today, a lot of time has gone by, right? Right? So a presupposition that we have, a foundational that we believe that we have of this word, is that God has preserved his word throughout the history of the church, and even before the history of the church, uh, during the Old Testament. Right? So we believe this word is the same as it was originally written by the human authors. Um, so those are the six I came up with. Like I said, you could probably make the list a lot longer if you wanted to. Um, spend more time on that. So, what do we bring to the text? We bring these foundational beliefs as believers to the text when we uh, read it. And we want these, right? These are things that are, that are good. All right. There's something called pre-understanding, um, has anyone ever heard of the term pre-understanding before? I don't think I had before I studied hermeneutics. Had anyone? Is it really used outside of this discipline? I wonder. I don't even know if it is. So no. No, uh, no one else has heard of it. Uh, a pre-understanding. When I was first working through this, I was like, all right, there's a pre-understanding and there's a presupposition. What's the difference between the two? They sound very similar, right? And so part of the struggle for me was determining, well, what's the difference? Uh, what are these uh, biblical scholars trying to get at when they write their hermeneutics, hermeneutics books where they all have these terms? Um, what are they trying to get at and the difference between these two? Um, so the difference between these two is a pre presupposition are these foundational beliefs that we have that we just went through, right? These are many times foundational to us. Uh, they're more standing, they're, they're harder to um, change. A pre-understanding changes often. So that's the difference. Um, presuppositions amongst everything else that has formed you the way you are help develop your pre-understanding when you come specifically to a text of Scripture. Um, so a presupposition is part of the formulation of a pre-understanding. A presupposition is a s- general statement you have, like these that we've just listed. A pre-understanding is 
an interpretation specifically of a text that you have before studying the text that's determined based on the way you're raised, based on um, the tradition you've been brought up in, based on the denomination you may have been brought up in, based on the culture, based on um, a lot of different things, based on your different presuppositions, those all form your pre-understanding when you come to a text. Um, So you can see, let's look through this really quick, defining pre-understanding before we start talking about examples. So we're going to define it, but then as you see in your note sheet, there's several examples I want us to look at in Scripture. So our presuppositions, good or bad, um, along with our traditions, experience, culture, etc., all affect the way you will interpret the text before studying it. And that's what leads to the pre-understanding. Um, here are two definitions. Uh, we define pre-understandings as a set of assumptions and attitudes which a person brings to his apprehension and interpretation of reality or any subject of it. You can see I found this at a um, part of a dissertation a long time ago, 16, uh, I mean 1969. Uh, and then the Duvall and Hayes book that uh, we've been using, uh, Pastor Jason, Sam, and I have been looking at a lot to help develop these texts, or these lessons, I should say. This definition was in that one. You can see pre-understanding refers to all of our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text, which we have, uh, which have been formulated both uh, consciously and subconsciously before we actually study the text in detail. So that's key, right? Um, that's why it's called pre-understanding. It's the way we interpret the text before we actually do the work to interpret the text. Um, and it's affected by our presuppositions and everything else that has formed you to who you are today. Um, if it's still difficult to really narrow down the difference between a presupposition and pre-understanding, I don't think it's harmful to think of them as the same. So, so you could think of them as the same as well, if, if that makes it a little bit easier. All right. So the question is, so you can see in your note sheet, what are some examples of pre-understandings we might have when looking at Scripture? Eve ate an apple. Eve ate, that's a really good one. <laughs> right, we all have the idea that Eve ate the apple. That was the forbidden fruits in the garden. Um, we always think of an apple. I actually think it was a grape, um, but again, we don't know. But many people just associate an apple with that. Grapes don't grow on trees. Yes, but I. <laughs> but I would say grapes back in the day were a lot larger, where the vines actually look like trees. Think about when the Israelites were going to the Promised Land, right? They had a vine, or uh, a thing of grapes between two people. So I would argue that's a good point, but it was a lot bigger. Grapes were a lot bigger back then, and the vines looked like trees because of that. What was that? Could have been olives. Could have been olives. We don't know. But these are examples of pre-understandings, right? Uh, Based on what we've just been, how we've been brought up, um, maybe determined by our culture, whatever it may be, um, maybe um, Snow White could be an example. Could have influenced the apple thing, where it's the evil uh, godmother or not godmother, stepmother. What was that? The children's Bible. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> When's yeah. the last time you saw it be a banana? I've never seen that. See? Yeah. So that's a great example. Um, there are many of these throughout Scripture. Some of them are don't make any difference really, and aren't an issue. But some of them can be issues also when it comes to understanding scripture. Um, does anyone have any other example they could think of? What about the topic of uh, where you fall on um, free will versus divinely appointed or select divine intervention? Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, so there are different types of theological th- thoughts, right? 
I mean, especially think like in terms of like if you're brought up under a specific denomination or a specific style of yeah interpreting the word, but you haven't done the research yourself, but you've just been exposed to it. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, I would I would agree with that, and uh, we will talk a little bit more about that and how um, tradition does play a part of our theological thought. And you can see that's part of example one, theological so tradition. I ran into it with the latter half of Romans 6. Our understanding at this point in our culture is that all slavery is always and in all situations bad. Yes. This is the one that Pastor Sam brought up when we were talking about it today. Slavery is a great example. So that made the, our pre-understanding as a Western culture made it much more difficult to work through what Paul was saying in Romans 6 and having to continually say when preaching, this is service to God or slavery to God without the baggage, negative baggage that we associate with slavery in all conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are really good at this, coming up with great examples. Um, but yeah, slavery is a huge one all throughout Scripture for us um, where we completely don't want to, many Christians may not want to deal with those passages at all or just completely demonize them right away simply because of our pre-understandings, things that we are bringing to the text that aren't actually there. Are there any others? A pre-understanding that we could think of. You guys have not said any of the ones I came up with, so that's a good thing. All right, the first one I have um, falls under uh, a tradition. Um, and I took it from church history. Uh, there was a guy um, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, it's known by tradition. Does anyone know who that may have been? Uh, the Apostle John, the disciple of John, who was on the island of Patmos, um, tradition says his disciple was named Polycarp. So there's Polycarp. Uh, and Polycarp's disciple is known as Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, and so... I want to look at this example from Irenaeus. He was born approximately around the year 320 and died approximately around the year 202. So really early, uh, second generation pretty much, or second century I should say, um, within the Christian faith, uh, really close to uh, the, apostolic, the apostolic line, right? Really close, just three disciples down, or two disciples down from the Apostle John, um, based on tradition. Uh, and so I wanted to look to him as an example. Um, but first, turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 56. John chapter 8, verse 56. So the example has to do with this passage and how Irenaeus interacts with it. Um, so before we actually read this verse, this one single verse uh, that some may accused me of just taking out of context. But before we get there, uh, I want to ask you the question, how much did the saints of the Old Testament know about Christ? What is your pre-understanding based on how you have been brought up in the church? Um, maybe how you've been taught here at this church or where else. How much did the saints in the Old Testament know about Christ as not just the Messiah, but then um, how he will die on the cross, how um, salvation will come through him. How much did the... It like a complete picture, like in Isaiah, but it was not clear. Yeah, so you have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? There's a lot of different pictures in Isaiah of mm -hmm. who Jesus is and what he will do, but yeah. it wasn't crystal clear. It was... Yeah, well, think about, let's think about Abraham, right? Abraham's always referred to as an example in the New Testament. So Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, um, lived well before many of these prophets 
before many of our Old Testament scripture, right? Uh, how much would Abraham have known of the person of Christ? What are some thoughts? It always says Abraham was saved because he believed in God. Yeah. His so, faith was counted to him as righteousness. Right. So, I, to me, that doesn't mean that he knew about Jesus at that point. Mm-hmm. He believed wholly in God. Yeah. I would think he wouldn't know. I, I don't know, just in my thought, I wouldn't think he'd know much about the Messiah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, what you guys are saying is probably the common answer. Um, and it could be the right answer uh, to the question. I mean, people could have different answers, do have different answers to this. Um, but going back to Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. Uh, during the second century, there was a lot of different false beliefs coming up um, about Christianity, about who Christ is. And one of these groups, we'll actually talk about a different group a little bit later, uh, but one of these groups was the Markians, um, Marconians. And they believed, the Marconians believed, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. Um, the God of the Old Testament was demonstrated as an angry God, and, right? and the God of the New Testament was demonstrated as a loving God. And so the Marconians wanted to divide up the Testaments. They wanted to get rid of the Old Testament and just keep the New Testament because they believed the New Testament was a trustworthy word of God and the Old Testament was not. So Irenaeus comes in and he writes against the heresies and addresses this group. And uh, one of his ways to address this group is he talks about the question I presented to you guys. How much of the, how much of the saints of the Old Testament did they know of Christ? Um, specifically Abraham. And uh, Irenaeus comes to this passage in John chapter 8, verse 58, which says, uh, 56, I should say, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. This is Christ speaking. He saw it and was glad. All right. Um, so what do we do with that? I mean, obviously the answer would be read it in context, right, with the rest of the chapter. Uh, but Irenaeus, wanting to, uh, so, um, wanted, wanted to um, support or uh, defend the Christian faith uh, and the fact that the Testaments actually were one unified book. The Old and New Testament go hand in hand together. He was reacting to his um, to others around him, and he wrote a commentary on this passage. He said, "Since Abraham was a prophet and saw in the Spirit the day of the Lord's coming and the dispensation of his suffering, through whom both he himself and all who, following in the example of his faith," trust in God should be saved, he rejoiced exceedingly. The Lord, therefore, was not unknown to Abraham. And he says that he's referring to Christ. Right? The Lord was therefore not unknown to Abraham, whose day he desired to see. So he's saying Abraham desired to see this person that he knew. Nor again was the Lord's father, for he had learned from the word of the Lord and believed him. Wherefore, it was accounted to him by the Lord for righteousness. So uh, Irenaeus in the 2nd century uh, to defend the unity between the Old and New Testament was showing that the God of Abraham and the God that we have in the New Testament were the same. And Abraham even knew that. And so that's how he applied the text to defend uh, the unity between both Testaments. So that's a little bit different than I think majority of us would maybe um, interpret this passage. And this is an example of a pre-understanding that was different between Irenaeus and then what we may have today. Um, Irenaeus was reacting to heretical beliefs in his day, and that helped shape his pre-understanding of the text. And we 
have different pre-understandings of the text. One is right. So I'm not saying both are right, right? But it's up to us to determine which one is right. So that's an example of a theological tradition um, of a pre-understanding. Next one is a little bit easier, I think, to get through, is personal experience. Everyone has different personal experiences in life that determine, that may determine how you interpret Scripture. It may influence your theological belief on something, uh, maybe a certain doctrine. Uh, but one example that comes to mind for me uh, and my family has to do with death and what, how, what it looks like when someone is passing from life into death and entering the kingdom of God. Uh, my uncle, Mike, um, passed away maybe close to 10 years ago from now. And I also had a younger brother who passed away uh, at childbirth. And my younger brother who passed away at childbirth died in 98. Um, and so with that, my uncle Mike, as he was getting ready to enter into heaven, he was a strong believer. Um, many of, all of his kids, I believe, were there. Um, I was not. Um, I believe my mom was there as well. Um, he was seeing different things before he went into eternity. And he was recognizing different people who had passed already before him in a way where he was interpreting it as they were greeting him into the kingdom of heaven. And right before he passed away, uh, multiple times he would raise up his arms and keep saying, lift me up, lift me up. And I remember his kids would try to like reposition him in the bed and he would get upset with them and say, no, that's not what I want. Um, and then also, uh, as he was passing away, he pointed to the corner of the room and said, hey, look, there's little David. And everyone in my family thought of my younger brother. And um, so that right there is an example of a pre-understanding from experience. So I believe many of my cousins, my uncle's kids, have a theological th component into their structure of how they interpret the Bible, of what it looks like to enter into eternity um, from this experience. It may be right, it may be wrong. I mean, we don't know. What we have to do is look at God's word and interpret our experiences based on what God's word says. So that's an example of experience. Um, does anyone else have any examples maybe from experience? you could think of that might influence the way you interpret scripture. I think many times it comes to death experiences or near-death experiences maybe um, in this category at least. It doesn't have to be or surrounded death. And I think for many that had a uh, absentee or an abusive father. Mm. Their pre-understanding of the fatherhood of God is uh, restricted it's true. in a negative way by their uh, cultural or personal experience with their own father. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those individuals have a negative idea of what a father is. So when you hear God is our father, those aren't good thoughts that come to mind. So that's a great example as well. All right, so there's so many things that influence our pre-understandings. Uh, another one, culture. Culture and society is huge. Um, everyone turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. We're not turning to many passages today, but we're still doing a few. I always have to like say the books of the Bible in my head to know how I find Jonah. Jose, Joel, and Obadiah. 
All right, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. So the very last verse in chapter 1, does anyone want to read that for us? And the Lord anointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right. This is an example that the book, uh, Grasping God's Word by Deval and Hayes, came up with, and I thought it was really good. Um, so we all know the story of Jonah, right, being swallowed by the whale. What are some pre-understandings we might have when we read specifically that one verse? What do you picture when you think of someone being swallowed by a whale and being in a whale? Are there any pictures that come to mind? Um, are you doing that on purpose because it's a fish and not a whale? Are you doing that on purpose? <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't matter, a fish or a whale. Um, it's a All right, a big fish. Yes, you know that's what I was getting like at. In this massive whale, and he's like mm-hmm. sitting on a raft. Yes, exactly. And that was my pre-understanding as well, right? The picture that you have um, as you read God's word, a picture comes to mind because of a movie, right? Um, when Pinocchio was going to save his father, and he then also gets swallowed by the whale or the big fish, whatever we want to call it. Um, I mean, that's a perfect example of, of a pre-understanding. Who thought of Pinocchio? Was it just Elliot? I thought well. Sight and Sound. We went to Sight and Sound several years ago, to, and uh, they did Jonah. Yeah. And he was sitting in the whale, and he was in really realistic because it really was this big fish he was sitting in. Yeah. And uh, the fact that he sat there and, and sat up, was sitting up talk, and sitting there waiting to get out of the whale, and the whale finally spit him out. But it, it was realistic that we can figure in our heads this big fish and the guy sitting up in it, inside him. Yeah. With, with, with no other intestines and no other, nothing else going on. Yeah, exactly. In reality, it was probably very cramped, right? And there was absolutely no wiggle room. <laughs> and it is gross. Well, yeah. But that wasn't gross, but you didn't see anything. Nothing disgusting in there. Yeah. No blood, no intestines, no nothing, just good on the whales. Yeah, so think about it, though. Like, movies and shows um, influence it. Like, Pinocchio had nothing to do with Jonah. Um, but yet, I think makes that picture for many of us as we think of someone in the belly of a whale. Um, but even for shows or little kid movies that have to do with the, with the biblical story, I think of VeggieTales. Like when you read a book, a story in the Bible, how many times do you think of a VeggieTales scene of that? Or like with Daniel in the lion's den or them walking around the walls of Jericho with them singing the song, <laughs> right? These are all pictures we have that we get from a movie when we read God's word. And many times, like I said, it could be um, not an issue in our interpretation, but many times they can cloud the actual picture that God's word wants to get across of what's happening. Um, so that's an example of uh, Pinocchio. Example four, uh, Jason, Sam, and I um, talked about this several years ago. I don't remember when. One day on a Sunday. Um, you could see honor, shame versus guilt and innocence. Um, and there's even a third category, which is um, something with power. Fear and power, yes. But today we're just talking about these two. So honor, shame, culture versus guilt and innocence culture. We today, as Westerners live in a guilt and innocence culture where we feel bad, right, or in trouble when we know we're guilty, right? But we don't when we know we're innocent, and we'll stand strong on that. Uh, In the Middle East and many, like, in the culture that uh, the Israelites were living in and the early um, first century Jews were living in, it was an honor-shame culture where you felt bad when you dishonored uh, 
Yeah, you could think of Mulan uh, with that. When you dishonor yourself or when you dishonor your family or the others around you, right? Or you could feel good, not necessarily when you're innocent, but when you bring honor uh, to those around you, right? And so by properly understanding the difference between these two cultures, uh, that could help us with our interpretation of Scripture. And it can um, show us our pre-understandings that we falsely put into the text because we have a guilt-innocence culture that we are starting from. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I was reading this book when I think I was working on my MDiv, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, and it talks all about this, the different cultures, and how we, as Westerners, read uh, the text with the guilt and innocence mentality when we should be understanding it with the honor-shame mentality. Um, and in this book, it goes to the story of David, King David. So I want you guys to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Richards and O'Brien. I can show you at the end. It's actually in your notebook as well on uh, suggestions for further reading or your note packet. So, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Everyone turn there. All right, so this is the story of when King David does his great sin, right, with Bathsheba. Um, and lusts after another person's wife and gets him killed. And we have the prophet Nathan coming in and confronting David in the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, but begin the very first verse in chapter 11. Who wants to read verse 1 of chapter 11 for us? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. All right. So this is uh, beginning of the chapter where David is um, not living to the, on- to the highest honor that he should as king. Right? What's happening here in the very beginning of the verse 1? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... Right. David is king. Is he going out to battle? He is not. He sends someone else, right? Um, and so right in the very beginning here, uh, we should see a problem, right? There is, uh, King David is not acting honorably as a king should. Uh, and then we see what happens here. He stays home, right? And then he sees Bathsheba. Uh, bathing, and we know the story with what happens here. Uh, And then King David tries to cover it up, right? Uh, What's interesting about this book and how they discuss the story uh, is they're suggesting that David, as king, um, doesn't necessarily feel guilty for his sin here. Right? He's more concerned about not bringing dishonor uh, to himself, but then ultimately to the kingdom. Uh, and so he tries to save himself um, by saving face, right? by having Uriah come and sleep with his wife. Um, but Uriah instead acts honorably, right? honor, shame idea happening here. So in this chapter 11, you have the comparison between Uriah and uh, King David, and it's surprising that King David is acting shamefully, and Uriah is the one who's acting honorably, right? And then all of this happens, and then in verse or chapter twelve comes along, and then the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David, right? Uh, again, it's interesting. This book suggests that up to this point, King David had no idea that he was even in the wrong here because um, it wasn't out. It wasn't out publicly necessarily uh, that he has done a shameful thing, right? 
the honor was still held until ultimately verse 7 of chapter 12 when, when Nathan, the prophet Nathan, when he's speaking to David, he's talking about the sheep. He said, verse 7, Nathan said to David, David, you are the man, right? The man uh, who has stolen the one man's poor lamb. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed the king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the land of Saul. And I gave you uh, your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So here, right, David had everything, and he deserved in their culture to have everything because he was king. But here, uh, in verse 7, you are that man. That's right when uh, King David recognized that he had brought shame, not only to himself, but then ultimately to God. Um, being the man, supposed to be being God's um, man, right? Right? Uh, king over God's nation. And this is when he brings shame. And so uh, God used shame to bring David to repentance. Uh, And I don't want to necessarily say the guilt and innocence component our culture is wrong, right? Uh, Innocence and guilt and shame and honor work hand in hand um, for us interacting with God and God convicting of us of our sins. So that's an honor, shame, guilt, and innocence example. Uh, last example I want to talk about, we're actually less than 15 minutes left, um, so I want us to move on quickly. Specifically, the American culture that we all are in, right? Never should we allow our culture to determine the meaning of Scripture. I think we should all agree with that, right? Uh, that's what we want to avoid, and that's why we want to understand what our pre-understandings are. So turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And if you guys know this chapter, you kind of probably know where I'm going with it. As Americans, is revolutions, are revolutions bad? That's the question. Um, That will influence the way we interpret this text. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying that we as Americans, as we read a passage like Romans 13, will have, will affect us in our interpretation versus maybe someone else from another country. But who wants to read verses 1 through 7 for us? 1 through 7. Read it nice and loud. I got it. Thank you. Every person is to be in subjection to the governor, governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So as you can see, um, this text, I mean, is is discussed often as it relates to us um, and our relationship with the government. How much rule and power does the government have over our lives as Christians? How much does it not? Uh, that's something we need to figure out for ourselves as we study God's word, right? Get to the bottom what this text is actually referring to. 
but many of us will have pre-understandings already coming into this text of what it does and does not mean, specifically because we are Americans, and our American culture has influenced those pre-understandings. So, are there any know, comments or questions at any of these five examples? Kind of went over them. Not too quick, but there wasn't a lot of time for interaction necessarily. So I've got a fun American cultural one that I was looking up a minute ago to okay. get the source. Sure. The uh, you know in the fall there was a uh, clip that made the rounds on Twitter of a lady in Texas being interviewed on her thoughts on the election, and she quoted the Bible on how the Bible says to make your calling and election secure or sure. Oh, jeez. Um, and it was her opinion <laughs> that the Bible dictates that we should make our elections secure because of her American pre-understanding yes. of what yes. the Bible was saying there. So, sorry, I just I got lost in that one. No, it's my, my favorite one recently. Yeah. Yeah, that's a. Like you're calling an election short. That's that's a great example of an obnoxious one. Yes. <laughs> right. There are many pre-understandings that are not as um, visible to us because many people have bought into it. Uh, but many there are many other examples that are very obvious to us that they're completely misusing uh, scripture and taking out of context, like the one you just brought up. That's that's pretty funny. <laughs> so. But there's so many of them, right? And these are a bunch of different examples that we've gone through of things we need to be careful about um, when it's a false pre-understanding when we come to Scripture. So we're at the last half of the last page here. Uh, Suggested guideposts or pre-understandings to help with interpreting Scripture. Uh, I was thinking through uh, different ways... Uh, people have tried to suggest good um, pre-understandings that we should hold on to when we come to interpreting Scripture. Right? This is including the list of presuppositions we have um, when we come to a text of Scripture. These are the three I was able to come up with. So, First one, rule of faith. Has anyone ever heard of the rule of faith before or knows what that is? The rule of faith is something that was referred to often in the early church. Uh, simply, the, it was what Christianity is all about. It was a confession of who Christ is as the Son of God uh, the second person of, of God, and a confession of who the Holy Spirit was as God. Uh, the rule of faith is well known from early patristic fathers, or when I say patristic, I mean early Christian fathers from the second, third, fourth century, uh, before many confessions were developed. Uh, Irenaeus, remember, we've learned about Irenaeus already, born around the year 120. Remember, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. We already talked about this. Another heresy, besides the Marconians, that he fought against, uh, maybe you've heard of this. I know Josh Walter likes to talk a lot about this group, um, are the Gnostics, the ones who believe that there is a secret knowledge that you are to obtain in order to have salvation. Right, A secret knowledge that's not necessarily in this word that's hidden for many people. Uh, and so Irenaeus wrote also against the Gnostics. And when he did, he would refer to the rule of faith to demonstrate how they are wrong. Right? Um, I want to read, if I have it, uh, part of the rule of faith for us. Here it is. Uh, what Irenaeus said. He says, the church, though uh, dispersed through our, dispersed through the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. The church believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and sea and all things that are in it. 
and in one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the apostles and dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth of from a virgin, and the passion, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven, and the flesh of the beloved Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he goes on explaining what our faith is. So the rule of faith is simply a declaration of what our faith is, what the gospel is, and who God is, and that Christ died on the cross, that he, re- he rose again from the grave. Um, and it was that statement that served as a guiding post for the early church. Right? Before many creeds were developed, before many catechisms, confessions were developed, this rule of faith helped um, keep the church centered on biblical truth and served as a pre-understanding. So that's what Irenaeus would refer to to combat the Gnostics in his book. All right, second one, creeds and catechisms, confessions. I put them all in the same category. These can serve as pre-understandings. Eliot, I think, brought this up, um, that a pre-understanding could be simply our theological stance on something, what we've been brought up in. And then thirdly, T-I-S, that stands for Theological Interpretation of Scripture. Theological Interpretation of Scripture. There's a big discussion right now amongst uh, Christian scholars on, as it relates to the subject on hermeneutics about interpretation, and they call it uh, theological interpretation of Scripture, uh, and they define it as this. Uh, TIS is an approach to biblical interpretation that approaches the text with explicitly theological presuppositions, questions, and concerns seeking to hear in Scripture not only the thoughts and voices of its various authors, but a word from God that functions as the primary and authoritative source of our knowledge of him. I know it's a big definition. You can't necessarily write all that down. Uh, But the theological interpretation of Scripture, uh, people who hold to this position would argue that we need to interpret the, the word of God based on our theological convictions. So therefore, we need to read Scripture with a Trinitarian lens. Right? We believe in the Trinity and that God is triune. So therefore, we should read this with a Trinitarian lens. Another implication of TIS uh, is that we should understand this Bible as one redemptive story of God saving humanity. That's a theological conviction. And it's actually one of the presuppositions we talked about earlier uh, that TIS tries to propose and hold on to versus more so than just the historical literary context of looking at books individually. But we'll get into that. So these are three different guideposts you could think of um, to help hold on to proper pre-understandings. But we won't get into all those right now. Um, and then to finish us up, submitting our pre-understandings to the text. As I said, presuppositions don't tend to change too often, but our pre-understandings should be uh, changing regularly as we God's, read God's word. Um, as we read God's word and spend more time in it, it should be correcting and forming our pre-understandings more and more and more. Say it needs to change our pre-understanding of the next time we approach a different text? Uh, no, even the same text. I would argue that this is what the hermeneutical spiral is. Okay. Um, I would say at this point we approach a text with a pre-understanding and we change that into an understanding. Okay. Yeah, and that understanding comes back with the hermeneutical spiral, um, influences us alongside with our theological development that we're learning and everything else, all the other experiences in life that we continue to have. Then we read that back into the text. So it's not, I would say, it continues to grow even with the same text. Um, Not meaning there are many meanings, but you can learn more 
learn more different about different implications from that one meaning um, and make more applications from that one meaning, maybe. But that's a good question. Um, but yeah, submitting our pre-understandings to the text. Uh, as I said, they need to be pliable. First one, identify your pre-understandings. That's what we've been doing, right? Second, be open to changing your pre-understandings. If we're wrong, we want to be open to changing them, right? Third, study the text in context. Uh, fourth, evaluate your pre-understandings based on what you just read. And then five, fifth, modify appropriately. Modify your pre-understandings appropriately. And so then your pre-understandings change into understandings, as Pastor Jason said. And if you have a perfect understanding of that one text of Scripture, it will never change. Um, but I think there's always development that needs to be done as we learn a meaning of a text in light of another meaning of a text uh, and see how they work together to continue to develop your theological understanding of who God is as you contemplate the greatness of God. Lord, we love you, and again, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, uh, to look at your word, Lord, and strive to know it better, Lord, as we point out um, our presuppositions, our pre-understandings of the text, Lord, that might be wrong, Lord. I pray that you will uh, make those clear to us as we seek to identify our pre-understandings, Lord. I pray that you'll point them out to us, uh, the ones that are wrong that we need to change, Lord. And I pray that we will do that with the community of the church, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, and how he is the one who convicts us of our sins and our false beliefs of you, Lord, and our false methods in studying your word, Lord. I pray that you just continue to develop us more into your son. I pray these things in your name.